Hi, this is Pastor Scott Stroud, and I'd like to thank you for joining us online today as you're watching this sermon series. I know that COVID has had a big impact on the church, and many people have been viewing from home uh, for three years now. And so, if you're one of those, thank you for coming and interacting with us online. But I would also like to extend a personal invitation to come and check us out here at Elam. And we know that fellowship is very important. According to the Bible, we should not uh, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And as you're thinking about, can you come now and, and venture out and join us uh, in, in person, uh, we would like to invite you and welcome you into the fellowship aspect of our worship time. Hope to see you soon on some Sunday at 10 a.m. somebody talking behind your back. Depending on what's being said, it can either be a wonderful or terrible experience. Words are powerful, and they have the potential to wound or to encourage you. You may not be aware of this, but Jesus is talking to you about you to the Father behind your back. <laughs> Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus lives to ever make intercession for us. To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another person. Or in other words, to come between two individuals as to prevent either a result or a course of events from happening. There are certain events in our lives that come about because of our current course. Our lives are headed down a particular road. But Jesus is intervening so that those things are changed or softened. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, where Jesus tells Peter that Satan wants to sift him like wheat. The devil wanted to test Peter, and because of the bent of Peter's life and his personality, he was going to fail. He was going to allow fear of man to cause him to reject Jesus. However, Jesus goes on to say, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. If Jesus had not prayed for him, his faith would have failed. He would not have become one of the leaders in the early church. He would have returned to fishing, or worse yet, committed suicide as Judas did. There are dozens of instances recorded in the New Testament where we see Jesus praying. However, there are only 12 passages that tell us what he prayed and only four passages where he prays specifically for an individual or a group of people. I already mentioned the Luke 22 passage where he prays for Peter. We also see in Luke 23, 34 on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In Luke 24, 50 through 53, he blesses the disciples before his ascension, and then here in our text today, we see the most extensive prayer, not only for the disciples, but also for those who would believe because of their testimony. As we examine this prayer of intercession, we will learn about the direction that our sinful nature wants to take us, and how Jesus' prayers redirect us to a new course of action. Because know this for certain, if it weren't for Jesus' intervention, we'd all be desperately lost. Before we get into the specifics of the things that Jesus prays for, I want you to notice the group that he prays for. 
He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me. Now, this is not to say that Jesus didn't pray for the unbelievers or that we shouldn't. In fact, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus told the disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the vineyard. And so that's a prayer for unbelievers. The point is that the specific things that this prayer talk about are only for Christians. And so the first thing that we see is that he prays, keep them in your name. Notice he says, keep them. This means that they are in God's name, but there's a danger of them not remaining in God's name. Last week in our confirmation class, we talked about the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Obviously, God's name is already holy. We don't need to make it holy. However, Martin Luther, commenting on this phrase, said, God's name is holy, however, it is not always holy among certain people. The Catechism textbook went on to say that one way God's name is made holy in our lives is by the way we represent the Lord to the world. And so when people look at our lives, do they see a God who is lifted up and revered? Or do we relate to God exactly the same way that the world does? My mom was married three different times in her life, and she had a different name each time she got married. That means including her maiden name, she was called by four different names. Her first husband, my dad, didn't do a very good job in trying to keep my mom's name upon her. He was an alcoholic, he couldn't hold a job, he treated us poorly, and eventually abandoned us. And so she abandoned his name. When you become a Christian, your name is changed. You become a part of the bride of Christ, the church, and your new name is Christian. Unlike our imperfect fathers, and I'm including myself in that list, you have a perfect Heavenly Father that will never abandon you. He will always look out for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus prays here that we will not abandon his name and return to our maiden name. And what is our maiden name? It's called by many different things. Pagan, atheist, unbeliever, heathen, child of the devil. Take your pick. Our inheritance is directly connected to God's name. All of who he is and all of what he has is granted to us. And so Jesus prays for us that we might always be mindful of how much we have as Christians and not be lured away by the world's temporary enticements. The second thing he prays here is guard them from the evil one. Jesus experienced many satanic attacks during his ministry on earth. The devil, through Herod, tried to kill him as a baby. During his temptation in the wilderness, Satan tried to get him to abandon his mission. Satan spoke through Peter in the form of a rebuke concerning Jesus' journey to the cross. Satan entered Judas and orchestrated Jesus' delivery into the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Roman prefect. Yet through it all, Jesus never caved to the pressure. And now he knows here that the devil is going to turn his efforts on the disciples and the future church. We see this perfectly illustrated in Revelation chapter 12. It says there, 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head, uh, on her head was a crown of 12 stars. This represents Israel. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. This represents Satan. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. These are the fallen angels. And cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, the one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's where Jesus is now. And the woman fled to the wilderness. Now skipping down to verse 17. Then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you. This war that's depicted here is still taking place today. And you're the target. And so, this is why Jesus prayed that we might be guarded against the evil one, the devil. And so the main question I had when I read this text was, how am I guarded from the devil's attacks? Because frankly, sometimes I don't feel like I'm guarded. Sometimes it feels like Satan and his demonic army have broken through the defenses and they're having a heyday in my life. Billy Graham says that one way you can be guarded is by staying close to God. This makes perfect sense because obviously it's easier for the wolf to attack one who's on the fringe rather than the one that is close to the shepherd. The Holy Spirit was the answer to Jesus' prayer in regard to this. We see this uh, prayer in John 14, 6. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another way that we are guarded is by joining the resistance. In the pioneer days, it wasn't just the men who were called upon to defend the frontier. The women and children were also trained to use firearms. And in this spiritual battle against Satan, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. We don't just sit back and watch the seemingly more spiritual ones do the fighting. You don't sit back and just watch the pastor or the elders or the prayer warriors. You're in the battle as well. Maybe you don't even know it, but you're in the battle. James 4, 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee. Because the devil has finite resources, he will send them to the weakest spots. And our attitude should be like this old woman who had been engaged in battles for decades. She told one pastor, when I wake up in the morning, the devil gets nervous. (laughs) Finally, we're guarded when we remember that Christ's victory over the devil is through the cross. And that's the reason we see crosses everywhere in church. They're there to remind us, to tell us that the victory has been secured even though we are continuing to wage battles on a daily basis. The next thing we see here is that Jesus goes on to pray that Christians may have joy fulfilled in them. This was very important for the early disciples because, as Jesus states, he was going to the Father. They're not going to have this feeling of joy of having him 
be there with them as they're seeing him lifted up into the heavenly realms. And I want you to note that Jesus doesn't pray, make them joyful. He's focused here on a joy that will be fulfilled at a future date. And this makes perfect sense when we think about the joy that Jesus himself had. Consider Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of God the Father. Resisting sin, running the race, fighting battles, enduring our cross, all these things are not very joyful activities for people. They're painful. They're sacrificial. However, for Jesus and us, we have a joy that is set before us. It's at the finish line. We have an eternal reward. Living forever in God's glorious kingdom, with our new bodies that have no sin. Now, I'm not saying that all joy in the Christian experience is in the future. There are plenty of New Testament passages that talk about joy in this life. But don't be too hard on yourself if you have down days, if you're not always feeling joyful. Don't worry if you feel like this life is hard and you wish that Jesus would just return and we could wrap it up. Because <laughs> you're in good company. The New Testament is filled with people who felt that same way. In fact, Paul longed to die and be with the Lord, which he said was better by far than living on this planet. However, he knew that God had more work for him to accomplish. And so he kept his nose to the grindstone and looked for the joy that was set before him. The point is that some days you just have to grind it out. Some days your main task is to just put one foot in front of the other. And if you discover along the path some happiness, right, give praise to God for that gift that he's given you in those moments. But just know this, if you pursue happiness for its own sake, you will end up depressed and discouraged. But if you per pursue the Lord, you will find everlasting joy at the end of the race. And this is why Jesus is praying that you won't give up because you feel a certain way in the moment. Notice here in verse 19 the main reason that we're prone to giving up. Jesus said, the world hated them, the Christians. And if you find your happiness and your joy from everyone around you liking you and getting along with you, then the true Christian experience is going to be extremely disappointing for you. Because the message of the New Testament is a stench to most people. When you talk to them about the Lord and about sin and about Christ and all that stuff, they smell their own death. It's like you're opening them up and maggots are spilling out. They're like, wait a second, what's going on with me? I thought I was live and happy. The world wants to remain blissfully ignorant of the fact that they are heading to hell. And finally, Jesus prays for them in regard to their sanctification. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctification, this is the process of maturing. 
We're growing up in the Lord so that we might become more and more like him. And what does Jesus set forth as the main way this happens? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we grow and we mature by embracing the truth that is found in the scriptures. And there are some main categories that I would like to briefly touch on that we're embracing. We're embracing the truth about our existence. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God spoke, it came into being. And the world tells us this is a myth. <laughs> The Bible tells us that the more mature our faith becomes, the more the account of the only one who was actually there at the time becomes credible, right? Also, the world tells us that people are mainly good, and with enough education, we can overcome all society's flaws. The Bible, however, tells us in Romans 3.6 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also tells us that people will get more and more wicked as the day draws near when Jesus is going to return. In fact, in Luke 18.8, Jesus is wondering, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? <laughs> also, we see the truth about the solution. The world is telling you, try harder. It's the age of self-help. In fact, the majority of the books on the New York Times bestseller list from 2022 fall into the category of self-help. Ways we can get better at working on ourselves, right? However, the Word of God tells us that humanity is in rebellion against God, and the solution is surrender, not self-help. Next, we see the truth about right living. Whenever you tune into the mainstream media, the main options regarding right living seem to fall in certain categories. Treatment of the environment, freedom of choice for the individual, or forced socioeconomic equality. Jesus shows us right living is about taking up our cross and following him. And it's only when the relationship is in right order that we can actually begin to do anything that is considered good in the eyes of heaven. And finally, we see the truth about our future. I touched on this earlier about the final destination of mankind. If you think that the, all there is to life right now is what happens on this side of death, then that mindset will cause you to become very short-sighted. If, however, you believe that those who have placed their trust in the saving work of Christ will live on into eternity, then your focus goes way beyond the temporal. You begin to act in certain ways that you normally wouldn't act. You begin to realize that your decisions in life are like C.S. Lewis put it, like throwing a pebble in a pond, an endless pond and those ripples continuing out. Through eternity. Our life is just the pebble, but that goes on into eternity. Wrapping up this morning, yes, Jesus is talking behind your back. And many of us wonder is he talking about all the bad stuff I'm doing and telling the Father, well, look at this guy again. Perhaps we believe that right at this moment he's conferring with the Father, wondering if he should even let you into heaven. This passage shows us the truth that Jesus is for us. He's interceding on our behalf. And by the way, that intercession is not just one person who likes you trying to convince another person who doesn't like you to treat you well. 
Because remember, the Father was the one who sent Jesus. It was his idea. And so Christian, take heart. Your faith is not in vain. In the words of Job, a man who knew what it was to long for salvation, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, my new body, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and how my heart yearns within me. So as we continue on in this battle, remember, the Lord is praying for you. He is interceding on your behalf. Take courage. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are interceding before the Father on our behalf. And Lord, help us to be encouraged with that knowledge and look for the long view of eternity. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.